Welcome to All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time. Our podcast offers friendly conversations with inspiring individuals in the autism community. All Autism Talk is brought to you by Learn Behavioral and the Learn Provider Network. Now, here's your host. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode. We're excited to have you here. This week, I had an opportunity to sit down with Dr. Megan Anna Neff, who is a neurodivergent psychologist. We had a great conversation about self-care and sensory needs, and it really sparked a lot of thinking for me, both from a clinical perspective, but also from just a human and, a, frankly, a parent perspective and what we can be doing to take care of ourselves. Dr. Neff is a neurodivergent psychologist and a founder of Neurodivergent Insights, where she creates education and wellness resources for neurodivergent adults. She's authored multiple peer-reviewed journals and has also co-authored several books, one of which is coming out in the beginning of 2024, Self-Care for Artistic People. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Megan Anna Neff. Dr. Neff, thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure to have you on our show today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for having me. So I'm so curious, how did you get into the into the field of autism and neurodivergence? And tell us a little bit about that and your background. Yeah, so it's, it's an interesting story um, and feels like a relevant place to start. So I was um, getting my doctorate in psychology and I knew a few people who were in the field of autism and I remember not having a draw to it at all, thinking like, that doesn't really sound interesting to me, um, which now I look back and I have, you know, I have some feelings about that. I wonder what kind of ableism was going on that I had that reaction. And I was about to graduate. I was three weeks away from graduation when one of my children had a an experience that, well, I guess we could call it a, a meltdown related to having interpreted something really li- literally. And they'd been diagnosed with ADHD earlier in their life, like a lot of girls kind of identified as ADHD, and then the autism was missed, even though looking back, it's like, yeah, we could definitely see early things. Um, and so that got me really curious, because here I was, nearly a, having a doctor in psychology, having missed my daughter for 10, 11 years. So I started researching. And I started researching specifically about autism in girls. And I started learning about how genetically linked it is, how common it is for one of the parents to be either autistic or on the broader autistic phenotype. And at first I scoured my spouse's tree and I was like, I, I think it's him. Yeah. And then I, I started again, as I was looking into the research, I was like, oh my goodness, this is me. Like I am autistic. And all of a sudden my whole life makes sense. I was you know, a lot of therapists in training do therapy as part of their training. So I'd been in analytic therapy for three years. And really, I was coming to terms with, I don't think I'm ever going to understand myself. I'm never going to understand why my experience of the world feels so different than what I perceive other people's experience to be. And then this narrative, it felt like it it fell in my lap. And for the first time in my life, my body made sense. My experience of self made sense. And it was a powerful moment of liberation. Wow. Um, and I think coming from the mental health world, it was like, wow, there's a lot we don't understand about autism because here I am with a pretty high degree just learning this about myself at 37. So that's that's my entry point. Wow. I'm, that is, I, I imagine a swirl of emotions were happening in that moment. I mean, 
trying to support your daughter as they were navigating this process, right? But then also uh, going through it on your own. What were some of the emotions you were feeling at the moment? Yeah, it was, and it's interesting. I've actually been reflecting on this a lot, talking about this a lot. Um, so I'm about three years in now. And I would say, you know, the first few months, it was, it was just my head was buzzing, partly because I was having so many moments of connection, both for parenting, parenting my daughter, like all of a sudden those first 10 years, especially her infancy, made so much sense. So I was having aha moments just right and left. And then in my own life, I was repacked, like kind of rediscovering 37 years of history and going through, um, not repackaging, there's a word. I was like sifting through it. I was sifting through my 37 years of history with this new lens. And my brain was just on fire with making all these connections. If this makes sense, this makes sense. So initially a lot of liberation, a lot of freedom, I think it became an access point for self-compassion for myself, but also a way to accurately understand my daughter, to understand her sensory needs, to understand how to better support her. Um, I, I would say my emotions have become more mixed as I've had three years. There, There is some grief that has come on too, and I think it's important to talk about that too, of I'm encountering limits that my body has, particularly sensory limits that are permanent. And so there's grief with that too. Um, but but mostly it's been liberating to finally have an accurate lens to understand myself and my daughter. I imagine, and I'm speculating, but I imagine there was a little bit of a bonding that happened between the two of you as you were better able to understand her and her 10 years of life at that point and be able to pinpoint like, oh man, there are some parallels, right? I would imagine, right? I experienced this and you experienced that. And I'm I'm projecting, I'm just guessing, but can you tell us about that um, that experience from the, the mother-daughter bond that you've had mm -hmm. at that time? Yeah, I would say it, it certainly was bonding. And um, I'm going to take a, a step back. One of the reasons it was bonding is because I could appropriately, accurately respond to my daughter's needs. Before I had that lens, Yeah, I didn't understand... I didn't understand the demand avoidance. I didn't understand the meltdowns. And like, again, like a lot of girls, I think her her father and I fell into this trap of assigning it to sensitivity or character, which I, I have so much guilt about now looking back. So I think it was bonding just in the fact of how I was able to show up for her differently. Um, in regards to between the two of us, I do think being able to talk about like, you know, we have shared language around like having sensory sick days. There's a lot of ways that we can connect on that. But I also think, and I'm going to share this because I, I could imagine this could be true for a lot of, especially mother-daughter dyads. Um, I got so excited about this because it explained 37 years of my life. It became a special interest. I created a career around it. I started specializing, working with autistic adults. Um, it didn't have that same, that, that wasn't my daughter's journey. So I think at times it's like, mom, can you stop making it about autism? <laughs> Which I, I like, I'm like, yeah, thanks for asking. Cause I think that's actually really important. I now have this lens of seeing everything through neurodivergence um, because it's been such a liberating thing to discover late in life, but that's not necessarily the child's experience. So that's been a learning curve too of, it is bonding, but also I need to make space for this not to be the only thing um, in our relationship or in our identities. 
that I didn't even consider that. I mean, I, you both were experiencing this in the same time, but in some ways having different experiences, um, understanding yourselves, you know, maybe a little bit better, but your takeaways were a little different, which is, that's just us being people, right? That's, that's what humans do. We're all different, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and especially just developmentally, if you're learning this about yourself as a preteen versus as, you know, a middle-aged adult, it's a really different experience. So I, I have a question for you and I, I don't know, uh, I'm going to try to say it in the best way I can, but why do you think that so many of us as parents, um, uh, tend to like rationalize away? I mean, you said it like, oh, we just explained it as sensitivity or we just explained it as other factors. Why do you think that happens? I think a combination of multiple things. I think at the top of the list, I would put stigma and lack of education. Um, a lot of the education we have, thankfully, I think this is changing, but a lot of the education we have is around affluent white cis boys and what it looks, what autism looks like. Um, we, until recently, had a really poor understanding of what it looks like in people of color and girls and gender queer people. And so I think e- even the medical world, like I, I look back on people I've worked with. And then I'm like, oh, I definitely miss that person. They were they were autistic and I miss them. Um, so I think partly it goes back to education and the just the research being what it's been. And then stigma and bias, you know, um, I, I just found this research on what stigma, kind of the originator of the term, and that it goes back to this idea of having a spoiled identity, which I, that language really grasped me of if you know, autism is still very stigmatized. And so if a parent um, is seen this as a spoiled identity, they're not going to want to be exploring that in their child. We we have a lot, I think, of what I call internalized ableism. Well, I call internalized ableism because I am autistic. I guess for other people, it might just be ableism. But they can get in the way of seeing our children accurately because there's still a lot of stigma around um, specifically autism, but also things like ADHD. I, my brain is like spinning with all all of that. That's that's incredible, and I I I appreciate that lack of education. I mean, I think that's so poignant, right? Um, so much research has been done on a select group of people with autism, right? Not everyone who identifies as autistic or everyone, who, and I just think that that's that's a limitation, right? And I I'm hopeful, and hopefully um, we'll get to this, but um, I'm hopeful that as a field we're evolving and. And adapting, would you agree with that statement? And that we're brought Yeah, I would. I, I think we are evolving. I, you know, I have so much hope. I don't know if you've seen or read um, "Is This Autism" with um, Donna Henderson and Sarah Whalen that came out this year. It's, um, I feel like that's such a groundbreaking book in the world of autism research. I, I really wish all clinicians and training read that book. Um, I think we're moving that way. You know, I was just interviewing someone yesterday on my podcast. He said, "Change is like a." F- Systemic change is like a slow moving freight train. And so it it is, it's gonna take a while. It's gonna take longer than any of us want, but I I do see it happening. I, I do see the shift. So you went from not being interested in 
autism as a diagnosis to now that has become in a lot of ways um, your specialty, right? Mm -hmm. And are divergent and supporting that community. Um, what a what a like one eighty for you. Mm -hmm. How has that shifted for you in terms of professionally, but also um, in terms of parenting, right? How how has that uh, that change affected you? Um, professionally, it changed significantly. Um, partly, I started taking my own sensory needs seriously. Before, when I worked in hospitals or universities, I would come home and I would just absolutely crash on the couch. I'd often have a low-grade fever, which I now realize like my body was just so sensory overloaded from the day. And I, my whole life was spent recovering from being out in the world. And so it, it really was impacting how I could show up as a parent because I was so exhausted. I now understand autistic masking and autistic burnout and that that was a big piece of what I was living. So once I understood these things, I changed my plans. I started a private practice versus joining a group practice where I specialize working with autistic ADHD adults, working therapeutically with fellow autistic ADHDers. I don't have to, um, masking is kind of similar to code switching. Like in, in the way I, I present myself, it requires a lot of energy and not having to do that clinically um, saved me a ton of energy. And I started Neurodivergent Insights where I get to find ways to make make an income doing what I love, which is learning, and then regurgitating that information through visualizations. It's kind of, I could do that for hours every day, and I get to do that now as part of my career. So that was a big shift. And then, yeah, absolutely, my parenting, I think just having the neurodivergent lens changed our whole family and how we how we are together, kind of expectations we have, the norms we have, how we talk with one another. So it's, it's been pretty life-changing. I don't think that's a, um, underestimate. Yeah. Yeah. I'm interested more about, um, neurodivergent families and this, this concept of like how the whole family, um, kind of comes together. Can you expand a little bit on that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so the first thing I think that was a big aha moment for our family. So I, I have two children, one's autistic dominant, one's ADHD dominant, um, so you can imagine there's a lot of clashing sensory needs in the family, right? Like one needs to move and make noises. The other like can't watch TV if there's movement in the room. And before these would just result in these kind of explosive blowups. All of a sudden we had a lens to be like, okay, we have clashing sensory needs in this moment. How are we going to get everyone's needs met? If not, maybe we separate. But being able to externalize the conflict through some of these lenses, like clashing sensory needs, yeah. has um, enabled us to talk about needs, enable us to meet people's needs. It has taken a lot of the tension and conflict out of the home and the stress that was present before. So that would be one example. That's a great example. I'm, I'm thinking about my family and my son and daughter who aren't, um, who don't have diagnoses, but they they also have very just different personalities and i'm i'm now replaying that in my mind of oh man i can see my son wants to run up and down the stairs and my daughter wants to read a book and that just sets up for the and the two of them are fighting next thing you know right um and i i like being able to talk that through and that's actually a really good point that i think a lot of the things coming out of families that are really leaning into how do we become more neuro inclusive like we're practicing things that are good for all families, right? All families are going to have clashing sensory needs and clashing needs and clashing personality traits. And 
the ability to talk about those things. I think with neurodiverse families, we have to talk about those things, right? Um, well, we don't all do, but I think we the, the urgency to talk about these things is there. Um, but I think all families would benefit from that. Yeah. You mentioned something a few minutes ago, and I, I, I want to I wanna go back to it if we can, just briefly. Um, you mentioned sensory sick days. What are sensory sick days? Tell us about that. Um, you know, yeah, maybe you've got to like experience it to, to, to know it, but it's, it's, um, when our body feels physically sick because of how much sensory input we've taken in. So, um, on days that I'm out in the world on days I'm presenting, like I, I know I, I start feeling feverish. I start feeling sick. Um, it's in it, it's different than physical sickness. And I can, I can kind of tell now. So it's those days when it's just, it's all built up and you're, you feel really crummy. That is top of mind, right? I think that's so important to be able to identify what you're feeling. And to your point from before, being able to talk it out and express it with your family and share, um, how, how do we get people to do that? How, how do we encourage people to talk through that in a way that's mm -hmm. constructive and that can mm -hmm. be hurt? Mm-hmm. There's my brain, now my brain is branching because there's so many factors that goes into that, right? Like we know a lot of autistic people struggle with interoception. So if if we struggle with interoception, that kind of body awareness, we may not realize when we're feeling sensory sick. It might come out more in our behavior and in our actions. Maybe our, we get more irritable or we get shorter. So first it's the process for the person of gaining body awareness, um, increasing interoception awareness to be able to know when they're they're reaching that sensory threshold. Um, and then I think, yeah, cultivating language. I feel like back to how my family has shifted, it's we have so much language we didn't have before. And often I think the parents are the ones that have to kind of set the stage for these are things we talk about and that it's normal to talk about it. Um, so I, I talk a lot when I'm talking with parents about developing a sensory lens, like just a lens to like think through what is the morning routine from a sensory perspective? How many transitions are there? Like what is the process of getting into the shower and getting out and the temperature change and the like all of the things that go into a morning routine? Being able to develop a sensory lens or if the child doesn't want to go to a dinner or to a movie. Like again, I if parents aren't considering how is the sensory experience of what I'm asking them to do influencing them, they're really going to miss their child. I'm playing through my morning routine and I'm thinking of all the changes and all the sensory moments that I have. I mean, brushing teeth, flossing, getting in and out of the shower. Uh, you know, I, I don't have a lot of hair, so I'm not spending time combing my hair, but I can imagine for some that what that's like. And uh, there's a lot just to get out the front door. I mean, changing clothes from, you know, comfy pajamas and sweatpants into, you know, work clothes or, or whatnot. Mm -hmm. Do do people feel burdened before they even leave the, the house? I would imagine that some people do, right? I would think a, a lot of us do. Yeah. I mean, things like brushing teeth, that's that's a big one, right? Like that's that's a very sensory experience. Um, absolutely. Yeah. I, I love your understanding around that of you just getting ready for the day. There's There's a sensory load that comes with that. And then what does that look like on the other end? You know, I'm, I'm imagining uh, coming home from school or work or wherever the autistic individual is going during the day and then coming home. How do, how do you decompress from that? How do you mm -hmm. uh, get back to 
I don't know how to say it any other way. How do you get back to baseline, so to speak? Yeah. So another language piece I use, I like to talk about sensory detox and like I have sensory detox rituals. So like putting on sweatpants or for me, sometimes a hot shower is a sensory detox. I have um, a moon pod, which is like kind of a specialized beanbag that has zero gravity. And then I'll put a weighted blanket on on top of that and I'll listen to a stim song on repeat. That's my sensory detox routine. Um, And, you know, for a lot of kids, right, there's this, I think, is it the shaken bottleneck or shaken bottle there's some word for it of like that the meltdown that often happens after school again if we have a sensory lens it's like okay this kid's been holding us together all day they're coming home they're sensory overloaded it's and it's coming out so i think building in those rituals and again normalizing like you know maybe maybe we need some sensory detox time like let's figure out what your sensory detox routine looks like i think building that in having I would say no demands or very little demands on a child when they're coming home from school, if they're in in person school, um, so that they do have some sensory detox time after school. I think that is incredibly important. Yeah, I'm thinking about my time as a clinician and man, uh, looking back with some regrets in this moment and thinking, okay, the the transition from school. You know, I I remember helping a family and um, they would get off the bus and they would walk. You know few houses to get to their house and they'd come home and they'd have a snack. And then we would jump right into uh, an after school routine of mm-hmm. put away your backpack and hang up your, you know, those type. But, but now I'm hearing this and rethinking, oh gosh, I just added a whole bunch of demands during a time where people could be feeling sensory overload. And that makes sense why that transition from home to school is really tough. And I hear so many parents say after school is the hardest time, that hour you know, half hour, hour, 45 minutes, whatever it is after school is really tough. And now thinking of it in this perspective, yeah, they've held it together all day and I've been on my best behavior and I wore these pants that weren't comfortable and, and I wore these shoes that I didn't really want to have to wear. And I, you know, sat in the lunchroom that was really loud and I get home and I just want to melt into the couch. So to speak. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And this, um, so one accommodation we've built in, and we and I will say like we have the privilege to do this in the sense that um, my my spouse is a stay at home parent, and not all families have this privilege. But one accommodation that we've built in for one of my children is, um, yeah, it would be more helpful if if they rode the bus, but like we go and pick them up because I like at the end of the day a bus ride. Like talk about sensory overload. Oh my goodness! Like I've chills just thinking about being on a bus with kids. Um, so that's one accommodation that like we've built in for our child. And then th- another another one that I think parents, I even even as an autistic person, I had to like catch the mom scripts that we're playing. There's pressure to be like, how was your day to like connect, right? Yeah. As you pick them yeah. up. What is most soothing for for my child and for most autistic children I know is um not talking or or so I'll maybe say like, it's good to see you, right? That That's not a demand because I'm not asking a question. And then typically turning on music and having a quiet ride home. But there's a lot of parenting scripts we have to work through because there's this idea of you're supposed to check in, you're supposed to, this should be this bonding experience when actually those questions can be experienced as a demand on when they're already overloaded. Yeah. Yeah. Question really is, it's a demand for information. How is your day? How is your math test? How was your best friend? What did you have for lunch? Did you finish your science project? I mean, yeah, that sounds so overwhelming. Like even just hearing you say that, yeah. and I know you're not asking me. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah that feels like a wave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
So I, um, I'm really curious and I think we're getting to this and I want to dive into it a little bit, but, um, is this part of neurodivergent affirming care? And can you explain more about mm -hmm. that concept for us? Yeah, I think, um, a lot of like, it's definitely kind of what I intuitively found. And a lot of people who are, who are talking about neurodivergent affirming care often start with the sensory. And I don't think that's an accident. I, for me, something I say a lot is, you know, if we aren't sensory regulated, the other regulation systems aren't going to happen. A lot of times what happens, especially in mental health, is like, let's regulate your attention and executive functioning and your behavior. But if you're trying to do that on top of a dysregulated sensory system, you're just going to create more friction. You're just going to create more defeat and helplessness. So I think starting with the sensory, um, it, it, that would I would say would be one of the cornerstones. I think another cornerstone aspect of neurodivergent affirming care that's really different than what we've had traditionally is um, coming from the neurodiversity paradigm, which is this is a biological diversity that is not um, something that we pathologize, that this is a, diff a distinct and different brain style and that it's it, that it's valid. And it doesn't mean it doesn't come without its vulnerabilities and without its struggles, um, but it it's not something to fix. And I think that I would say would be the big distinguishing factor between um, kind of traditional models of autism and then a neurodivergent affirming approach. So it's for us to understand, but not necessarily to be fixed. Yeah. Yeah. And I, that doesn't mean that, that there aren't things that we support, right? So we definitely would be talking about, okay, what are the support needs here? Um, if there's co-occurring anxiety or depression or OCD, which there often is something like that, of course we treat and support that. But the brain style itself, like our way of communicating, like there's nothing broken with it. It's a really direct um, kind of, I like to say, visual way of communicating, but it doesn't mean that it's a lesser way of communicating. I really like that. I'm, I'm going back to the understanding piece in my mind, right? Having a better understanding of what the individual is trying to say and making sure that they have the tools to say it and that it's a common enough uh, vocabulary that the household or the home can understand it as well, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So I want to talk. You mentioned something. I want. I want to dive into it a little bit. I want to talk about you and your work. Uh, if we can dive into that. Mm -hmm. um, so you mentioned you like to take research and create visuals from it. I, I'm so curious about your process. What that looks like. Tell us more. Mm -hmm. Well, I I think in visuals more than words. Um, so if I'm engaging with a concept, uh, like a metaphor or an image will come into my head. And that's always been how I engage and understand information. So it's, it's actually a pretty natural extension. Um, the first visuals I made that ended up going viral, like this was kind of an accident. They I made them because I was curious and they went viral. And now I have a career based on all of this. Um, but it was I make these Venn diagrams and I call them Misdiagnosis Monday. Because in my mind, I was thinking, okay, if we know that a lot of particularly women are not being identified, but they're probably getting diagnosed with something, what are they getting diagnosed with? So I created these Venn diagrams that overlap like borderline personality disorder and autism and things like that. So my process for that would be to go read the literature. Typically, that'd be like reading or skimming 15 or 20 articles and then and then I guess putting what's in my head on paper. Um, but yeah, for me, when I even when I write, so I write, I create workbooks like wellness workbooks. It's hard for me to write text unless I first create graphics 
it's like it's part of how I come to know is through the creation of visuals. And I actually find that to be pretty common among a lot of autistic people is that kind of there's a visualization aspect to coming to know and understand the thing. I love that that's part of your learning process and that in your learning, you're creating tools for people and that it just happened to be that. I, th I think that's, mm -hmm. that's great. Like what a, what a fortunate circumstance yeah. to be able to say like, this is how I absorb this information and now it's useful to who knows however many people. Um, yeah. I don't think I'd be able to stay engaged in my work if I wasn't doing it to, for me to understand the world and understand these things out of my own curiosity. Yeah. 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 So you, you mentioned you started making some workbooks, right? And some visual books for people and about self-care and other things. How can self-care be different for an, indi an autistic individual versus a neurotypical or someone else? Yeah. So I think, um, and part of what motivated that was, yeah, a lot of the things that people talked about as self-care throughout my life, I was like, yeah, that, that doesn't really work for you the way you're describing that. Um, so, I, and with the self-care book that's coming out this, uh, I think in, in March, it, it starts with a chapter on sensory self-care. And again, for all the reasons I've, I've already listed of this is, I would say the cornerstone of self-care. And then another cornerstone of self-care is self-attunement or the ability to know what is happening moment to moment, right? If I'm having a difficult interaction with one of my children and my sympathetic nervous system is starting to get activated, and if there's a script in the back of my head about either what I'm worried about for my child's future or like who I am as a parent, if I'm not aware of these things happening, it's going to be really hard for me to step in and kind of take some cleansing breaths, identify the script to be able to take care of myself in that moment. So that that step of self-awareness, being able to learn to track ourselves, um, that's a really important skill. And that can be a skill that can be hard for a lot of autistic people. Again, back to interoception and then alexithymia, which is the difficulty identifying emotions, can also make that self, kind of that moment-to-moment -moment self awareness a bit more difficult for us. So we've got to build some scaffolding to get to a lot of the self-care skills that kind of maybe more intuitively work for other folks. I think there are times I've struggled with that, right? Like the the you start to feel a certain way and I try to label it to my children like I'm starting to get frustrated I'm starting to get upset and then next thing you know I'm I'm yelling and that's not what I wanted and then I feel embarrassed and then that I that I'm apologizing and I'm just replaying that in my mind as you're describing it it's like man I need to if I had a script if I had a way to pause that and step away and recollect myself right and then go to the situation in a different way that would be better for everybody I think we all absolutely. need absolutely yeah. yeah, absolutely. We all, I would say that's like all neurotypes, um, the bedrock of self-care is that self-attunement, being able to track ourselves. Um, absolutely. Yeah. So aside from sensory, what are, what are some things that parents should be paying attention to um, as they're helping, you know, their neurodivergent mm -hmm. families? So I think um, another area I would kind of dig into, so we, we have a chapter in the book on emotional self-care, for example. And I think a lot of the traditional, that's a place where I feel like a lot of the traditional things, like I know they didn't work for me. So having creative, creative ways of exploring one's emotions and kind of modeling that, exploring one's emotions, accessing the inner world. So things, you know, things like 
how are you doing? Like if you were to, if we had started our call and you were like, Megan Anna, how are you doing today? You would have gotten like a blank stare from me and then me fumbling through words. Like that's not a question that I'm really able to answer. But if you'd been like, go play it, go pick a song that depicts how you are today or write an essay about your inner world or like other um, creative outlets, that's something I could engage. So there's, and these can be prompts too of, um, so, so like therapists who work with autistic teens, I know a lot of them will be like, bring in a song that captures your mood. And then that becomes a prompt to explore their inner world. So that that would be one bucket, would be kind of emotional self-care. I'm not sure if that's exactly what you were looking for, but that was the first thing that popped in my head. Yeah, I was just thinking the, the question that popped in my head is draw me a picture of how you're feeling or draw me a picture of your day or something like that, as opposed to the litany of questions that I threw out there that's not the right right or incorporate incorporating special interests too right so like if someone's really into minecraft oh gosh i probably don't know minecraft well enough to do this but like if your day was i mean you could create the shared language right like if yeah. your day was a villager or a zombie or like you could create a scale um and I actually like that developing because the how was your day is hard but it can be nice to check in so like one to 10, how was the day? Especially if a kid's really struggling with school, it can be nice to be like, okay, one to 10, how how terrible of a day was that? But I would think one to 10 can also be hard. So I would think if you could develop a system that drew on special interests, um, that you were co-created the language with your child, I think that's something that could be, it could be pretty fun and useful. Yeah. And again, it creates that common, that common vernacular, right? That common terminology mm -hmm. for people to say, I'm feeling, you know, a zombie today. It's going to be very different from family to family. But as long as you can take care of the family that is around you, then, and that's a way that they can communicate, then great. You're getting the information you need as a parent, but also um, they're expressing themselves and being able to be heard in a way that they maybe couldn't in other places. Maybe that's like, maybe that's kind of the big takeaway from our talk today. You know, there's a, Yalom is a therapist who, um, or, who's an analyst who I've read a lot of his work. One thing he says about therapy is that with every client, I create a new language. And I've always loved that. And I think with every child, we create a new language. With every neurodiverse family, we create a new language. And I think when we're parenting cross neurotype, and by cross neurotype, I mean, like if you're neurotypical and you're parenting an autistic child, that becomes so much more important to create a shared language, almost like a shared island where you two can meet each other, where your two worlds can meet. That's a great takeaway. I love that. Megan, Anna, where, where can we find you have a book coming out mm -hmm. pretty soon, right? Um, uh, Self-care for autistic people, correct? Yep. That'll be out in March and you can get that at any major bookstore. It's available for pre-order now. Yep. Wait. And where can we find the rest of your work? So um, my website is neurodivergentinsights.com and I have a lot of um, both um, just resources, but also that's where I guess a lot of my diagrams live. Um, my biggest, I guess, social media platform is Instagram. So neurodivergent underscore insights. Um, and then I do have a community that I've recently launched um, and there are parents in there as well. Most of the folks in there are neurodivergent themselves, but um, I'm really, in this next stage, I'm really craving intentional, thoughtful community created in digital space because I think 
whether you are neurodivergent or you're parenting a neurodivergent child, I think it can be a very um, isolating experience in the world. Great. Well, we appreciate you and your insights today. And thank you for taking time to educate me. Certainly, I, I feel like I've learned a lot and I just appreciate the work you're doing. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I've, I've enjoyed this conversation, which um, I, I'm not good at lines. So, you know, I mean it. <laughs> Great. Well, I appreciate that. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Neff. I really took away a lot. And for me, the first thing I want to share that I took away is this idea that we're creating space to honor the emotional and sensory needs of not just our children and the people we care about, but our family and ourselves as a whole. And I think really what I took away was that um, the goal is to create a space where everyone in the family can feel supported and seen and connected. And that creates a different level of intimacy as a family unit than I think we've talked about before on this on this show. For me, I, I've been spending a lot of time thinking about this and reflecting and I had uh, the other night, my son asked if I would cuddle him before bedtime. And I said, no, not tonight, buddy. Daddy's really tired. And I kind of walked away. And my first thought was, oh, if I was a parent, I, if I was a good parent, I should have stayed and cuddled him. But I really thought about the conversation we had with Dr. Neff and I just needed space and that's okay. And I made it a point to cuddle with him before school the next day because I felt refreshed and I had my downtime and I felt like I was in a better place to share. And that created a different connection for us. And looking back on that, that this conversation about sensory and sensory care and sensory breaks, um, I, I just didn't have that skill set before this conversation. I didn't have that understanding. So I was very appreciative of that from Dr. Neff. I think that my other big takeaway is this idea of creating a new language for every family. Um, certainly that's something that I need to work on with my family and um, the clinician in me is thinking of all the ways I can help families with that, but the parent in me is thinking, man, I just, I can bring some of this home too and just have a, a more intimate human connection with my family as a, as a unit at home. And not worry so much about all the things we should do and just be available for the things we can do today, whether it's been a good day or not, just the things we can do today. Thank you for tuning in and for listening this week. As always, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Autism Therapies. And if you have a show suggestion or other feedback for us, feel free to send us a message on our website at allautismtalk.com. Until next time, take care. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of All Autism Talk. This podcast is brought to you by Learn Behavioral, the leading network of providers serving children with autism and other special needs. Visit us at learnbehavioral.com. Listen to previous episodes at allautismtalk.com on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time.